From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. Um, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 if you have a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, you likely have a smartphone with you, and you can open up a free Bible app called Uversion Bible app. If you don't have that Bible app on there, I suggest you download it, because then you can never be without a Bible. You have no excuse. So turn to Matthew chapter 19. Um, I'm excited for today. Today is our last talk in our series called Relationship Reset. And if you were with us last week, show of hands, who were, who's with us last week? Okay, I promise you, no, that's not true. I don't plan on shouting today. Um, that's, not, that's not in the plan. It's never in the game plan, but when the Spirit of God moves my heart, sometimes it just can't help but speak louder. And so that's not in the plan, but we've looked at a number of things over the past few weeks regarding relationships, specifically marriages. We are, our goal in this is to look at relationships how God intended, look at marriage how God intended, press the reset button on that. So we've looked at being Christ-centered, mission-driven. Last week, we talked about being armed and ready, and today we're going to talk about being covenant-steady. And I like that the, the definition of steady means firmly fixed. And I believe that we need a a firm and fixed definition of marriage as seen in the Bible as a covenant. A firm and fixed definition. So Matthew chapter 19, this is a conversation Jesus had with the Pharisees. Starting verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you heard, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces a wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it has been given. And can I just say singleness is a gift? Some of you are like, high five to that. Some of you are like, I'm not high five to that. (laughs) For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. There's a lot to unpack in that text, a lot, that we're not going to, we could do a, a whole series probably just on that text But we're going to focus our attention today on what God has joined together, that joining together. And I just want to make a disclaimer, because I know this can be a sensitive subject. And so depending on your situation, you know, if I mention or say something that just seems a little uncomfortable for you in your situation, know my heart, that my heart is not to embarrass anyone. My heart is not to hurt anyone. But I want you just to hear the heart of the Father in all this and know the grace that Jesus has for you today. Amen? Can we just bow our heads and let's just begin by praying and asking the Spirit to speak to our hearts. Father, we're thankful that you're here in our midst. We're thankful that your presence is here, Lord. 
And we just ask in the name of Jesus that you would open our hearts to everything that you want to say, to everything you want to do, Lord, that we would be receptive to your word, that we'd be receptive to your presence, Father. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would instill something in us this morning as only you can, that you change us, God. And just, God, I pray in the name of Jesus that we'd be open to specifically the word you have for us as individuals. I know that I can share, I often pray this, that I can share what I've prepared to share and what I believe you've put in my heart, but you can speak a completely different word to someone. And so I just pray that we would be open, Spirit of God, to who you are and to what you want to say to us this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody said? So here's been our, uh, our text, our key text for um, this series comes from Genesis chapter 1. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper who is just right for him. It goes on to, to explain the creation of, of Eve. And then in verse 24, it says, This explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. So this is the climax of creation, and this is what Jesus quotes basically in Matthew chapter 19. The climax of cre creation. God makes the first couple, and we see the first marriage. And I wonder if you would just bear with me for a moment. What was that like for Adam? Right? What was, what was that moment like for Adam? He's never seen his potential bride. Like he's about, I don't know if you were on Netflix, but there's a, there's a show on Netflix, I believe it's called Love is Blind, and it's these people who date each other without seeing each other through like a, a screen, and then they propose to one, you know, one proposes, and they get married without actually seeing each other. And I just think that's crazy, but here you have Adam with this, this, this bride-to-be coming, and he hasn't met her, he hasn't seen her. I wonder what he feels. I remember what the, the, that day was like for me, our wedding day. We've been married, Jody and I, for nine years, um, coming this July, and don't worry, I double-checked. I wanted to make sure I got that right. I remembered. Um, this year being nine years in July, and we got married in this beautiful um, garden outside of a manor in Windsor, and it was absolutely gorgeous. I remember when we set up for the day, because typically the groom and the groomsmen help prepare the space maybe in the morning, at least we did, and we were setting out chairs, and the sky didn't look too good, right? It looked like it was going to rain. And one of my groomsmen was like, I don't know if we should do this. And I was like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I didn't say, I probably did say that. But I was like, this is happening. This is my wedding day, and it's happening. And we set it up, and sure enough, the sun came out. And the sun, it was a hot day. It turned out to be a really hot day, but it was a gorgeous, beautiful day. And I was waiting inside of the manor, inside of this room by myself. I don't know what my groomsmen were doing. They were doing who knows what. I was by myself. And I could, I could look out the windows and I could see everyone starting to come in and fill the, the chairs and, and waiting for our ceremony to begin. And I started to get so nervous. And I wasn't nervous about marriage and I wasn't nervous about, you know, the, the, the whole part of being wed to, to Jody at all. I was excited for that. I was probably more nervous that every eye is going to be on me. You know, they're not really looking at me. They're looking at her, and you're shaking your heads like, come on, you know this. Except for the few. Some of you know that you look at the, you look at the groom because you want to see his reaction when he sees his bride, right? Like some of you do that. But I remember, I remember just the, the nerve of the whole moment that I'm going to see my bride. I'm not just going to see Jody. I'm going to see my bride walk down the aisle. And sure enough, she comes down the aisle, and I'm just like a basket case in tears, and she's tears, and, you know, it's beautiful, and we wed, and they announce us as husband and wife, you know, kiss the bride, all that stuff. And from that moment on, for the rest of the day, and literally probably to this day, we, once in a while, we just pause and go, we're married. <laughs> like, 
you and me, we're doing this right now. Like, it's, we still, today now it's evolved. Like, we look at our kids running around, we're like, man, we have kids. Like, <laughs> what was God thinking, right? <laughs> Giving us kids? But I remember, I remember thinking about the marriage and, and what marriage means to me. And my question for you this morning, what does marriage mean to you? Comes to mind when you think of marriage. Definitions are important. How we define something is important because definitions determine not only how we use a word, but they determine how we approach and view what is being defined. So definitions are important. Definition of marriage is important because how I define marriage determines how I approach marriage, how I view marriage, how I talk about marriage, how I understand marriage. In turn, how I approach relationships. So it's important to talk about it. It's important to talk about our definition of marriage because in our culture, in our society, in our humanity, relationships are defining. Have you noticed that? You're often defined by your relationship status. You ever fill out a form, one of the first things they ask you, are you single or are you married? I'll be like, who wants to know? Are you single or you're married? You get to know someone, you meet someone for the first time, you start to ask those kind of questions just to get to know them. You might ask, are you married? Do you have kids? Are you seeing someone? And for, I would say, we would say for right or wrong, but I would say more on the wrong, we tend to identify ourselves with our relationship status. And people get to know us, and people often define us, and there's a level to which someone understands us based on our relationship status. So it's important to have a, a proper definition of marriage. Not only that, you see in our culture, marriage is being defined and redefined, and not who it's for, but just what marriage is. And I think even more so on a spiritual level, my definition of marriage influences how I relate to God. Because when I talk about marriage, or someone talks about marriage, or marriage is talked about, depending on what my definition is, if my definition is different than what God's definition is, there's going to be tension in my faith in those moments. Even more so, and, and what I want to kind of touch on and lead to today, much of the New Testament uses marriage as a metaphor to describe the relationship between Jesus and the church. So it's important that we have a biblical definition of marriage, especially if marriage is a symbol of God's relationship to his, to his church, to his bride. So the Bible defines marriage as this, as the lifelong covenant union between a man and a woman where the two become one. And I want to state today that if we're going to be Christ-centered in our relationships, in our marriages, then we need to be covenant-steady. We need to be firmly fixed in our definition of marriage as a covenant. So Jesus has this encounter with the Pharisees. The Pharisees approach him as they often do to test him. The Pharisees were a religious sect Religious teachers, a group that were devoted to a strict adherence to the Old Testament law. And they were often opponents of the way of Jesus. And so they come to Jesus to test him regarding marriage and divorce and this union. It says, is it lawful, I read it for you earlier, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read? Like, I imagine the conversation going like, Jesus is like, don't you, you're religious teachers. You're Pharisees, you should know this. Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning, it's always important to go back to the beginning. It's always important to look at the Genesis story because that often tells us what it was intended to look like, anything. 
That in the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, he says, which is important, because of all that, because of all that, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So marriage is this union under God. And I know some of you are thinking, I know this stuff. This is easy, but you need to track with me today. You need to track me because we're going to actually lead to communion. This is at the end of this sermon, we're going to find ourselves reflecting on the covenant Jesus made with us. Marriage is this union under God. And while we sign a piece of paper before witnesses, share vows, consummate the marriage, marriage is God-ordained. Marriage is a God-ordained thing. Therefore, he says, let no one separate it. Let nobody separate it. And that's Jesus' words. That's not my words. That's not scholars' words, right? That's not church history words. That's the Messiah's words. There's a few things in the, in the scripture that you see where, where God describes things that he hates. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says that God hates pride. Hates pride. It says that he hates lying, that he, that he hates hands that, that shed innocent blood. Those that make corrupt plans, fit that are quick to, feet that are quick to evil. And in Malachi chapter 2, it says, depending on your translation that you read from in the Bible, it says that God hates divorce. Hates it. That's strong language, right? I don't know about you, but there, there are some things in life that I hate. Now bear with me for a moment. You know what I hate? I hate having to take apart my toilet because my son decides to flush a plastic spoon down it. It happened this week. Joshua decided he didn't like a toy, and so he put it in the toilet, a little Lego figure, but we got that one out. Sure enough, the toilet was clogged, but we tried to unclog it, and it seemed like it was going a little bit. Monday morning rolls around, and the toilet's still clogged. So we go to Joshua and say, Joshua, is there anything else in the toilet? Sure enough, Spoonie was in the toilet. Spoonie is his plastic spoon that he turned into a toy and he didn't like anymore. So Monday morning was, needless to say, not an exciting morning for me. Do you know what I hate? I hate the rush of morning sometimes. I hate getting up and getting ready and getting the kids ready and getting breakfast going and getting everybody ready and out the door. So especially when you throw a plastic spoon and toilet into the mix, I hate that. I hate the rush of mornings. Do you know what I hate? You're going to think I'm crazy, but I think you're all crazy. I hate peanut butter. I hate peanut butter. I think peanut butter is, is from the devil. And... <laughs> And the Bible says that he's the father of lies, and he's the deceiver, and he's deceived you all into believing that the taste is good, and it's not good. You're all deceived. You're, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. Do you know what I hate? On a more serious note, I hate gossip. I hate gossip. I hate chatter behind someone's back. It's so destructive. Nobody wins. It's like having a mud fight. Everyone just gets muddy and messy. God says that he hates divorce and peanut butter. It's not in there. That's not true. In the book of Malachi, it says that God hates divorce. Another way to, to read that word, that word could be translated like this, is enemy. If you look at the original Hebrew, that word could be translated enemy, that divorce is an enemy of God, that the separation of this joining together is a devil to God. Now, Malachi's day, the prophet Malachi lived in a time when the Israelites were largely unfaithful, largely unfaithful, and the men were unfaithful to their, to their brides, to their wives, and they were divorcing them for any and every reason. 
And they would find themselves at the altar of worship. They would come and offer a sacrifice with tears in their eyes, asking the Lord why he would not accept their offering. And do you know what he says? He points to their unfaithfulness to their spouse. He says, you can't come and worship and expect me to accept your worship and go and be faithful in your home. It doesn't work like that. You're you're not computing this properly. You can't come and think that I'm going to be pleased with what you bring me, and then you go and you be unfaithful to your spouse. He hates divorce. He hates that separating. Because at the climax of creation, when God had finished making all things, the marriage of two becoming one was in view. It says in, in the book of Genesis that after God had finished creating everything, he looked at all that he had created, and he said what? It is very good. And one of the last things he had done was put the two together to one. Very good. Now, I understand Malachi because I've seen firsthand what divorce does, and I know many of you know this. You've walked that road. It hurts. It's destructive. It destroys. And so I believe when, when, when God uses this, this terminology, when Jesus uses these words to describe it to the Pharisees, they're not coming as this condemning dictator you need to know this god's not just standing on high saying these are my rules and regulations and if you do not follow so be it i don't care but it says a loving father who says this is not what i intended it to be this is not how i designed it this is not what it's for so the pharisees want to know is there any reason to divorce give us some good reasons and jesus says what god has brought together let no one separate and that tells us something about God's definition of marriage. I heard someone say that you can approach marriage three ways, casually, contractually, and covenantly. And I just want to break this down really quick for us. The first approach would be the casual approach. The casual approach to marriage says, it's just a piece of paper, it's not a big deal. I might get married, I might not, it doesn't matter, who cares? Marriage doesn't really do anything anyway. But with a casual view to marriage results in a casual approach to relationships and then a casual approach to commitment and a casual approach to sex. Relationships and commitment become less important. Relationships become something to serve yourself. I feel lonely. I need someone to make myself feel better, which is not the intention of marriage. And sex is less about the bond and intimacy and vulnerability shared between a husband and wife, but just a tool to find pleasure. I got an urge. I got to fix it. This is how I fix it. I got an internal fleshly desire, and I get it. We were designed that way, but it was designed in a certain context. I got a fleshly desire. I want to fill that void. I just go and I find the tool that fills that void. Sex is just sex. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter who I do it with, when I do it, as long as two consensual adults agree, we're not hurting anyone, why wait till marriage? Just a piece of paper. Now, if you give sex before marriage, what you're telling yourself and what you're telling your partner is that marriage isn't a big deal. And then since marriage isn't a big deal and since sex isn't a big deal, we might as well live together. And so we do married things without actually being married because it's convenient. And listen, I'm not condemning anyone. There's God's got vast grace for all of us. All of us are imperfect. All of us make mistakes. All of us fall short. The Bible says there are none that do good. Thank good God 
for Jesus Christ. We're all on a journey, but I just want us to have a high view of marriage. Statistically, more and more people live together out of wedlock, and that makes sense because our culture, in our culture, marriage is in high value, and the marriage bed isn't held in high regard. A lot of people say, well, we're just testing things out. Like it's like a baseball game. Just want to see how we play. See if it's a good fit. Problem is that's not God's view. That's not covenant. The Bible says that we're not called to conform to the pattern of this culture, right? Sobering. But to be holy and separate. So if we do that, if we have a casual view of relationships, casual view of sex, and we end up finding ourselves living together, a couple things happen, a couple cases, you have the one couple that never gets married because she really wants to get married, but he doesn't, he just keeps putting it off, or maybe it's flipped. And that's often because he has everything that marriage offers without the commitment. Why would he get married? That's just one case, and that's not every case. On the other case, you have, you have someone who is in a relationship, it doesn't work out, they break it off, and they go on, they move on, they, the whole cycle continues, they try it with someone else. End up being sexually active, living together, doesn't work out, they move on, find someone else, and the cycle continues, and the cycle continues. You know what they're essentially doing? They're practicing divorce. We wonder why the divorce rate is so high. It's because people practice divorce before they get married. So they find themselves finally in a situation where they love somebody and want to commit themselves to that somebody, and they get married, but then when there's conflict and it doesn't work out, what happens? We separate and we divorce. Now, that's not the only reason I know that. But we wonder why divorce rate is so high. It's because we're playing house. My kids play house. We're playing house. A casual view of marriage leads to a casual view of relationships, commitment, and sex. And can I just say, often if we've been hurt by divorce or we've walked that road, we, have a, we walk a fine line of, of approaching relationships in our future casually. We need to be careful. And we need to hold marriage as God defined marriage still, regardless. Just because of our situation, just because of someone's mistake, doesn't mean marriage changes for God. Second view is the, the contract. This is the view that marriage is just an, an agreement, a contract. Yes, when you get married, you sign a piece of paper, right? It's, it's, it's a good thing. It's, a, it's an agreement, part of, the, part of the process, but it's not just a piece of paper. we got to remember a driver's license isn't just a piece of paper, right? But if that's all marriage is, it's just a contract, but then we, then we have a very, the marriage lacks the meaning behind it. I don't know if you remember the days when a handshake meant something. Does anybody remember when, when a handshake meant more than it does today? You know, some people have like a really good handshake. Like, you know they just made some sweet deals with that handshake. You ever shake somebody's hand and they close it too early and you're left with like the wimpy fish? You know, you know or, you're, or some crushed bones. Sometimes that happens to me and I still want to be very manly, so I try to like squeeze as hard as I can with my thumb. Like I'm still, I'm still, I got, still got a firm handshake even though you crushed all my fingers. But I remember, the, I, remember I, I was young, but I remember the day when handshake meant more than it does today. Nowadays, you need, you need a piece of paper when it comes to agreement, right? I don't trust you, so I get you to sign on the dotted line. And it becomes this contract that if you don't hold to you, your end of the bargain, the contract is null and void. And if we approach marriage this way, marriage becomes just about the contract, that I'm going to hold you to these things, and if you don't hold to your part of the agreement, you know, you don't make me happy, then we, then we break it off and we go our separate ways. 
And, and marriage then just becomes this agreement for the benefits of, of what comes with marriage. And maybe that's tax-related purposes, but it's not about the meaning behind it. It's just this agreement. Sign on the dotted line. Okay, we're good for a season. Let's try this out. You know, there's, there's marriage contracts now that have expiry dates. We'll give this five years and we'll see what happens. Like you're setting yourself up for failure. If I say, let's go in five years, we'll come back in five years and reevaluate, I'm basically saying that this might not work out, right? There's an option for us at the end. It's not the biblical view. The third view is the biblical view, and that's the covenant. The two will become one flesh. This is the holy covenant established by God. Now, you don't hear that word a lot of days. People don't usually use covenant outside of religious um, circles, but, it, but I found this definition, I thought it was beautiful. It's a mutual commitment motivated by sacrificial love for the other. Mutual commitment motivated by sacrificial love for the other. Now, similar to a contract in that an agreement is made, right? We still sign a marriage license, but it's deeper than that, that I'm not just holding you to something, I'm holding myself, right? I'm holding myself to something. A covenant was well-known concept in ancient times, Covenants were made often between two equal parties, but more often than not between a king and a subject. The king would promise certain protections, and in turn, the, the subject would promise loyalty to the king for those protections. Now, God made a number of covenantal promises in the Old Testament. After the flood, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 8, God made a covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the world by a flood. Did you know that's why we have rainbows in the sky, according to the Bible? The rainbow is a sign that the, the, the world will not be flooded as it once was. God made a covenant with Abraham in which he promised to make Abraham into a great nation and use his family to bless others as long as he was faithful and he would teach his family to be faithful. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel so Abraham's family did get large, did get big, became the nation of Israel and God made a covenant with them that if they followed his laws and his decrees and his commands, he would bless them. God made a covenant with King David the greatest king of that nation. He says, one day you will have a, 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 a line, that never, a son who sits on the throne and forever. And that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, God made a covenant with that nation once again, saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. I promise a new covenant is coming. And that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. Now the word covenant comes from a Hebrew word which, which means a cutting. It means to cut off or to cut down. And it usually entailed a shedding and mixing of blood. Originally, the covenant was sealed with blood. That's where you get the term blood covenant. It was a bond of life fellowship where the mingling of the blood was seemed essential because blood is considered the life force of a person. Now, in some ancient cultures, what they would do is they would cut their forearms and they would suck the blood out of the other person, mingling their blood. I know that sounds gross. But in ancient Hebrew culture, in the Old Testament, they were commanded to not drink blood, right? It was unlawful for them to drink blood from another living thing because, again, the life force in the Old Testament says is in the blood. And so what they would do is they would substitute with animals. Often we see that, the animal sacrifice, or the animal substitution. And what they would do is they would take the uh, sacrificial animals and they would cut them right down the middle. And then they'd divide them and they'd line them up in two lines. And the two parties making the covenant would walk through those, those, those covenantal animals. Symbolizing the same thing as the mixing of the blood. That we are bond now by their blood. 
We were born now by their blood. But it also had, and this is key, it also had this other thing that if I don't hold up to my end of the agreement, the same thing that happened to these animals is going to happen to me. That's essentially what they're saying. Now, what's really cool is in, is in Abraham's covenant with God, God made a covenant with Abraham using this ritual. And so they cut some sacrificial animals, they split them up, and then Abraham fell asleep. So convenient, right? He fell asleep. God spoke to him in a dream, and while he was sleeping, God passed through these, these animals by himself, symbolizing that God is making the covenant with himself and only himself. That regardless of what happens with Abraham, this is happening. Covenant. It's a blood covenant. So let me bring this back to, to marriage. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. What does blood covenant have to do with marriage? So in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew um, culture, in a wedding ceremony, often the priest would cut the hand of the groom and cut the hand of the bride and put their hands together, symbolizing this mingling of the blood, the blood covenant. Then the priest would bind their hands together. They would share vows before family and friends, and then they would go off to this room where they would consummate the marriage. You can all read between the lines there, right? Ask your neighbor what that means. They'd consummate the marriage. This was the physical shedding and mingling of blood. So where there, was this, there was a mingling of blood with their hands, but then there was the physical shedding and mingling of blood. Everybody would be waiting while this happened, by the way. And then when they finished, they'd come out and everybody would have this party. They'd party and they'd celebrate that there is a bond now made with blood. There is a union. There is the two flesh becoming one symbolized through the mingling of blood. So in God's design, marriage is not this casual contractual partnership, but a deep spiritual lifelong covenant where two become one. So when Jesus says what God has joined together let no one separate, is for good reason. Because it's deep. It's not casual. It's, there's oneness there. No longer are we two but one. No longer do we have, it's not your money and, and this is my money, it's our money. It's not your time and my time, it's our time. Not what you do and what I do, it's what we do. You know, I, I found it interesting after I got married that I, I had to change the way I did things. Somebody asked me to do something. I couldn't just agree to it because I'm no longer just me. There's two in this equation. Hey, do you want to come out and do this? I can't be like, sure. Although I want to say sure. Do I want to spend my money this way? Sure, but I can't just spend my money this way because our money. Do I want, to, I want to spend all day doing what I want to do? Sure, I do. But the two are one. Someone else to think about. Now let me take this even, even deeper. Marriage is to be held in such regard, high regard because the covenant symbolizes God's covenant with us in Jesus. Jesus made a covenant with us, right? A new covenant, a binding agreement where, we, where he would shed his blood for us on the cross. So that we could live with him for all eternity. Jesus prayed with, 
for the believers, for all believers, anyone that would believe in the gospel message in John chapter 17, I believe it was, and he said this. He says, Father, just, are, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be in us also. Union. Forever union. That's, that's marriage. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about marriage. So in the, in the gospel accounts, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Judas betrays him. Jesus takes the cup, right? For those of you who've been in church, you know this. He takes the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In my blood. The marriage covenant in my blood, which is, is going to be shed for you. Take this and drink this and do this in remembrance of me. Now, here's what's really cool. I'm going to invite our communion service to come and prepare at this time. Here's what's really cool. That's Old Testament wedding language. That's Hebrew wedding language. So in a, in a Hebrew wedding proposal, a potential groom would provide his potential bride with a contract, with an agreement, a covenant that symbolized and had everything written down that he was agreeing to in this marriage proposal. And he would present her with it, and they would go over it, and then he would pour her a cup of wine. And he'd give her the cup of wine. And she would take the cup, and if she agreed to the terms, she would drink from the cup. Are you tracking with me? So Jesus takes the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant given for you. He's proposing to us that if we take the cup and we drink the cup, what are we doing? We're sealing the covenant. We're sealing the covenant. Just hold on a moment, guys. We're sealing the covenant. So as followers of Jesus, we're going to take communion today. And we're going to define marriage as God intended. Why? By remembering the covenant he made with us in Jesus. Because marriage isn't just a casual contract. Where two people like each other and feel good about each other and say, hey, we, let's do this for a while. Marriage is more than just a, let's, let's do this, but if it doesn't work out, that's okay. There's, there's options for us. Marriage is so much more than that because in, in God's view of marriage, it's how he views his bride. It's how he views his church. And so regardless, can I just say this, and I say this with as much heart and sensitivity, regardless of your situation, regardless of what you've been through, marriage needs to be held in high regard, at least among people of the scriptures in his church because it reflects the union God has with the church. And can I just challenge you, for those of you who are in marriages, husbands, wives, you fight, and you invest, and you develop, and you work on, because what you have with one another reflects the union God has with the church in Jesus. And I think when Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate, had more had just as much to do with the individuals getting married as it had to do with our union with him. What God has joined together in the blood of Jesus on the cross, let no man separate. You tracking with me? This is a holy union under God. A holy union. Yes, divorce happens. Separation happens. Do you think God gets that? Absolutely. He's smarter than you. He's smarter He's got a bigger heart for you. He's got a bigger heart for your spouse. He's got a bigger heart for your kids. He's got a bigger heart for your family. He loves unconditionally. It breaks his heart. He says, this is not what I intended. It's not what I designed.
Because when I made Adam and I brought him Eve and I made the two become one, I was pointing to a day when my son would die on the cross for all sins and I would take people and they would be in perpetual union with me. So we take the cup of the new covenant, the blood covenant, symbolizing our marriage to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what marriage is. That's what marriage is. So we're going to take communion together in just a moment. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Paul in the New Testament asks, tells us to examine ourselves to, to see if there would be anything in us, hidden sin or unconfessed sin, that would make us unworthy of receiving the cup. He actually goes on to say in that, in that section of Scripture, he says, this is why there's some sick among you. Because you've drank from the covenant cup in an unworthy manner and brought judgment upon yourself. Basically, there's unconfessed sin. So let's just take a moment and ask ourselves, God, is there something in me? Is there something in me that would make me unworthy of this cup? And if there is, reveal it to me. Forgive me and help me to repent Jesus' name. Just go ahead, 30 seconds. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.